Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief Mark Legfold. Joining me on Beneath the Wing is Tech Sergeant Michael Schutte. Mike is a key player in our air transportation function, which means he gets cargo and passengers ready to travel on military aircraft to any place worldwide. He's also this year's non-commissioned officer of the year for our wing and for the state of Minnesota. Welcome, Mike. How's it going? Great. It's really glad. I'm really glad to have you on the podcast to tell your story. Um, NCO of the year is a pretty big deal, and it's very, very competitive, as you found out on yeah. your journey along the way. So first of all, congratulations again on a fantastic year. Thank you. And thanks for representing us already so well. So let's talk about how your year started, where you were, and what you were doing. What got you to be NCO of the year? Yeah, so um, volunteered for a deployment, gosh, now two years ago about. So by the time it actually happened, was last year, um, had to do a bunch of pre-deployment training at the beginning of the year at 2021 and then left for Kuwait in 20, or sorry, March. Um, from there, kind of got to forward to deploy to a bunch of different locations and got back at the end of September. So that's kind of what led me to getting some good numbers and Kind Good of a experience. whirlwind. Yeah. So if I had never, if I'd never wore the uniform, we talk about deployments and, you know, we see what we see on the news and we see our, our members of the armed forces doing hard stuff mm -hmm. in difficult places, separated from their families, uh, but they're with a good group of, of friends and colleagues, um, brothers and sisters in arms. When you say you forward deployed, I'm assuming you have a place where you're staying, uh, but then you go off to other places. Correct. Why would an air transportation guy need to do that? Yeah, so um, I was with the QRT, which is the 387th. QRT. AES. Yep, quick reaction or quick response team. Got it. Okay. Um, and essentially, we're just going to different locations where maybe they need more help. Um, they have they don't have enough bodies, so they need more bodies. Um, they don't have an inspector, so I would go out there and inspect the cargo on some different missions. Um, yeah, just kind of wherever they were, 2T2 was needed, we would go forward and help them out. So, yeah. Yep. A lot of that is, when you talk about an inspection, that type of stuff is important so that it can get on the plane and Correct. move around a ton. Yep. Yeah, so a lot of what we did was inspecting vehicles or some army units that didn't have a logistic personnel with them that kind of needed help with, you know, making their hazdex look good, they're making it airworthy enough to get on the plane and go wherever it needed to go. For so. sure. So you worked a lot with the Army? Yeah. How was that experience? It was good. It's good. Um, on my first deployment, I didn't really work with them at all, so it was good to get that exposure. Get They have different lingo than we do, so it's kind of nice to hear what they say, and then you got to comprehend, and you got to figure out what they're trying to do, And but it was good. 
good exposure. Kind of like learning a, a whole new language. Yeah, exactly. What was it like? Because you you have a life back here in the States. I sure do, yeah. <laughs> uh, Mike is one of what we call a traditional guard uh, person in that you come in and you'll work with us one weekend a month mm -hmm. and a little bit more than two weeks a year. Yeah, a little bit more, but that's all right. <laughs> Uh, but then you have a civilian life, yeah. a civilian job, yep. uh, a family. Um, when you're deployed and you're in those environments and you're forward deploying from your original base, how is that communication with back home? How do you manage that? So this one was a lot harder. The first deployment, I was just in Kuwait where we had Wi-Fi and you know I could Skype or text and do whatever. This one, um, so me and my wife, we do foster care and we've had our foster daughter for a little over or a little less than three years right now. So this is my first deployment with a kid. And so that was a lot more challenging, but it was tough. They, she understood what I was doing and um, she knew that there would be days or weeks where I couldn't communicate just because there was no way for me to communicate. Um, and each different location that I was at had a different challenge. Some had Wi-Fi, some didn't, some, some you just had to call on a phone that they had um, or an email if you could get internet. So they knew that there was gonna be a lot of different challenges with communication, and I think they did pretty good with it. Yeah, did you have like a normal routine on a call that you would do? No, um, not necessarily. Um, my daughter, she does, she's not a huge fan of talking on the phone, so she kept, kept hers short and sweet, which was, it was nice. Um, just get the basics. What did you do today? Yeah. Love you, miss you. Um, and if she she would ask where I am and simple things like that. So not too complicated, but still kind of a challenge at times. I suppose. yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a lot of times where she wanted to talk where I just wasn't able. But uh huh. Yeah. Um, was that tough? Because this is your like you said your first deployment with a child mm -hmm. at home. Um, how was that for you personally? It was a lot more real. Um, my wife understands what we're trying to do here and she understands that it's not gonna be easy and that I'm gonna have to go places, but my daughter just, she was at six when I, she was six when I left, so she just, she didn't quite understand it. She didn't quite understand the length that I was gonna be gone, so it was a lot more real trying to navigate around that. Yeah, for sure. Did your wife have a good support network back home yeah, here? Yeah, great support network. Yeah, um, My family is all very close her, with her family. And I think, honestly, the support network helped that I wasn't here. Um, it grew. They all got stronger. They all got better. Um, and they worked well together. One, the one of the strengths, I believe, of the National Guard structure compared to our active duty counterparts is when we deploy, our our families are usually in the place where we're located. I'm talking like an extended family, a mom, a grandma, uh, an aunt, an uncle is usually right down the road, if not, uh, you know, a, a short drive down the highway. Yeah. So we have that kind of ingrained support structure. So it's great to hear that your close family was, you know, yeah. geographically close and able to help out. Um, do you think that? things would have been different if you were active duty and separated? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, knowing my wife, she probably would have came home anyway. She would have lived with her parents or something for a little bit <laughs> um, if we were at a location where they weren't just to get that extra support. Um, 
So I'm glad that I'm not active duty in that sense. Yeah. Um, Different branch, but still, it's uh, everybody's got their own challenges right. when deployments yep. happen, and yeah. uh, it's. I think that's one of the strengths that we're able to provide. You were doing some hard work while you were deployed. Uh, one of the things that you did do was you went and actually closed bases, because um, although you didn't start out in Afghanistan, you did some traveling throughout Afghanistan. Yeah. How many different places did you see while you were there? So. When I first got to Kuwait, we were kind of under the impression that we weren't going to be really going too many places, maybe just a day trip here or there. And within the first three days, they're like, hey, you're going to Syria for a day or two. And so I was a little nervous just from what you hear on the news. Um, but then I got there, we were greeted by an army guy in short shorts, flip-flops, and no shirt. So it kind of <laughs> relaxed us a little bit. And then... Um, so I was there for an, just an overnight, came back, and then again a, a couple days later, they were like, hey, everybody's going to Afghanistan. So um, so there I started off at Kandahar. I was there for a month, um, then Bagram, then Masri Sharif. Came back to Kuwait for a little bit, went a couple different locations, um, Israel for a couple days, and then went back to Kabul for the evac. So I was there again for two weeks. Yeah. So, yeah, I got to do my traveling, and most of it was in Afghanistan, so I totally spent about four months in Afghanistan. Yeah, this was during uh, what in the military we call a retrograde, retrograde activity, uh, but it was during that pretty tumultuous time. We're all watching it on the news going, this, this looks like it is just hard. Yeah. Um, and the human toll and the things that I'm sure you were seeing, the bases that you were closing prior to going... Um, in and finally closing down the country in, in Kabul. What was it like to go in and close down a military operation at a pretty well-established base? Yeah, the first one was Kandahar. And, um, you know, there was a couple hundred people still there when we got there. And I just had a team of 12 that I was with. And we kind of have to be the last people there because you got to load the stuff. So, um was all of the evacuation of people and material done by aircraft? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, mostly C-17s, uh, C a couple C-130s every once in a while. But, yeah. And there it was... It was um, fairly easy, just... Not fairly easy, but you really got the hang of what you were doing. It took about a week to really understand, like and focus in on what you're trying to do here, and that's trying to get everybody off that base, all the equipment that you can off that base that's um, necessary to get off that, and you just kind of work together. Um, one of the best things about it was we were made up of mostly guard and a couple reservists, and then a couple active duty, and I think the benefit to being guard is you're able to adapt a lot more than other, other um, branches and I think that comes from having civilian jobs and, you know, you're kind of balancing your family, your civilian job, and your military career, and you're able to adapt, and I, that really benefited us out yeah. there. So, Did the team kind of mold itself together Yeah. Uh, in that regard where, you're right, I, sometimes we have, we have a lot of rules and a certain way of doing things in the military, but at the end of the day, what you were doing kind of epitomizes the, those are there as a guide at the end of the day, we really have to just get the yep. job done. Yeah, as long as everybody's safe and and you get out what you're supposed to get out, you know, you still gotta you still gotta hit 
you got to be safe and you got to hit all the marks that you're supposed to, you know, make sure that everything's safe to fly, people are good to go. Um, so there's still all of that, but yet there's some more efficient ways to do it. And plus we had a lack of communication as far as internet and who we were talking to. We were doing a lot of stuff by paper. Um, loadmasters would come in and be like, hey, we need this stuff out on the next plane. So there was just a lack of communication because we couldn't, we didn't have the resources. Right. That is an important thing, especially, you know, now where we're seeing um, the need for actual, authentic, real, on-the-ground leadership when mm -hmm. you can't reach back and ask a question of an expert. What was it like uh, forming and leading in that team within that environment where you guys were just on your own and having to make decisions without a lifeline, basically? Yeah. Um, we had to quickly learn about each other in our team because we were all from different units. I was the only one from the 133rd in, in the QRT and you kind of, we got there a week before we got to Afghanistan. You kind of got to quickly learn how everybody else works, what their strengths, what their weaknesses are and um, working as a team kind of, that, that helped us out a lot. So forming a team rapidly yeah. while you're doing the work. And I think the stress of the job and where we were at helped speed that along, which was nice. Um, but yeah, some of my best friends in my military have come from, honestly, Kandahar. So, yeah. But what did you, now you work in the civilian side too. Did that teach you anything about how to work with and interact with people on the civilian side that you translated? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think my my previous job, I worked for the city of Prairie and just in um, public works, you got to do a lot of communication and it's a lot of kind of quick thinking. Um, and you're communicating with people that are similar, but also way different. Everybody comes from different places. Um, and I think that helped a lot. You kind of get used to people and what they how they work, and you kind of have seen it in my civilian world, so I think that helped. Did it make you a little bit more accepting of, of people's different perspectives and just maybe be able, better able to mold them together into, into one group? Yep. Yep. Um, the hardest work that you had to do, I imagine, I mean, the world was not closing in on you when you were closing some of these smaller bases like it was in Kabul. Mm -hmm. Um, at least that's my assumption. Is that true? Correct. Yeah. So when the last plane went out, there wasn't a sense of difficulty or danger that you were just leaving behind an empty place? Um, slightly, yeah. Um, Kandahar, I mean, we had every night we had unfriendly drones flying over us. They weren't really doing anything too crazy. They were kind of just more recording and watching. and So it was pretty uneasy, but not a super real threat like Kabul was. Um, but yeah, on our last day in Kandahar, we had a, as many C-17s as we could get in, and we were just running from one to the next, just trying to get them loaded, trying to get out of there. And so that part was pretty stressful, but then once they were all gone and we were just waiting on our 17 to come in, it was like the calm. It, yeah. was, it, was, it was good. Everything gone, empty place. How many people would be left behind waiting for the last plane in that so then, mission? Yeah, mostly it was just Special Forces people left. Um, the real last people that were 
closing the base, the yeah. last people, the last U.S. forces there, um, our security. So they were on the plane right after us, and then after that, it was no, no U.S. there. So All right. it, was, it was good. It was an experience that I never thought I was going to be in, especially compared to my first deployment where right. I was just in Kuwait, and you know we were busy, we were doing our job, but it was... You know, you knew what to expect. You had this an air-conditioned air no gym idea. you could go Correct. work out in, and yep. all the comforts of home without the home, right? Yeah, <laughs> and all the good communication. Okay, so you did that three times, three different bases while you were in. Yep, Kandahar, and then Bagram. But Bagram was more of like um, McGuire CR. They kind of ran the show, so there was a lot more bodies there. Um, we were kind of just there to help out. We were just extra bodies there. Um, and so I left Bagram a couple weeks before it actually closed, so it wasn't quite as as scary, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I went to Masri Sharif, and that's a German-owned base, or it was a German-owned base. And um, so there was a lot less U.S. troops there, which was it was fun. You kind of got a different culture. You got how, the way that the Germans did it, and all, a bunch of other NATO forces. And there we worked together, and that was fun. That was probably my favorite location. Um, we just we knew what to expect at that one. It was my third base. I knew what I had to do, and they kind of just let us do it. And mm -hmm. as long as we met our expectations and their goals, we were left alone for the most part. So let's let's fast forward to the real hard work. Yeah. On this on this trip. So you're told, hey, you're going to go and. Um, the last Americans are going to be leaving the country of Afghanistan through a pretty difficult place, through a very populated airfield. Uh, did you get a chance to call home and tell your family you were going to be offline for a little while? Yeah, so back in Kuwait, um, when we were waiting to go, they said, hey, we're, this group is going out now. This next group is going out in 12 hours. So we kind of had an understanding of when we were leaving. So. And pr prior to that, I had we had a couple members of the QRT already in Kabul, and before anything crazy happened, so they were kind of just waiting there until the evac or what they thought was going to happen happened. Um, so I had been communicating with them and just kind of relaying that back to home. And but yeah, when it was when it was on, I left a message. My wife called me right back, and we talked and. And I kind of didn't text her for a while or message her until I got to Kabul. Mm -hmm. um, but so, every day I would just send a, we're safe today, and text, and it worked out. So Glad it worked out. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> I'm, sh I'm sure that was, it was tough for both of you. Yeah. Um, so you're going to write a book called Two Weeks in, in Kabul. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows, um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> what's the first chapter? Um... So I had, on the way to, from Bagram to Masri Sharif, I stopped in Kabul, and it was nice then. They had stores open, shops, um, you could get restaurant food, and we kind of had a little tour guide, and that's what I was expecting again, and it wasn't anything like that. Um, there was a lot more, you could just feel like a lot more emotion because you had so many refugees that are so scared of the unknown. Um, if they stayed at their house, what was going to happen to them? If they leave, what's going to happen to them? Um, for the most part, they were super thankful. And 
relieved when they got on the planes. But then again, you're surrounded by people that are not so, they're not, they don't think the same way that we do. And it was, it was real. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of the whole world's eyes were on you. So it, it was a lot different feeling than the other ones. The other places that I closed, they, nobody really, not that they didn't care, but nobody really knew what was going on. Here, everything was publicized. It was on the news. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a different feeling to it. I'm quite sure you're getting people ready to hop on planes. And there were times where that air crew had to make really tough decisions mm -hmm. as far as how many people they could pack on. Yep. Um, within all of that, uh, Mike, you had the opportunity to demonstrate some humanity and some kindness. Um, what did that look like for you? How did you approach that? <laughs> uh, everybody that I was with is probably going to make fun of me this for this, but uh, I carried as many crates of water as I could to every single plane that I went to just to, some of these people were stuck on planes for 10 plus hours. So trying to give them as much water and little food that we had to give them, um, that's what I my whole goal was to make people feel as safe and try to keep them healthy on the plane. Mm -hmm. um, I would be carrying as many as I could, sometimes six. <laughs> and <laughs> so the people on the QRT, they, they would make fun of me, but that's all right. Um, <laughs> Why? Because you could carry that much water? No. <laughs> or? That too, yeah. No. yeah. That at the end of the day, uh, when people think about the job of the Air Force or the Department of Defense as a whole, um, representing what is best about our country isn't necessarily flying the jets or walking around on a patrol. It's exactly that, taking care of human beings in a tough situation. Yep. Um, does compassion come into play in the hard work of our jobs where it is the flying of the jets and being on patrol with most people? You worked with Special Forces folks while you were there. Did you yeah. notice that level of compassion for other human beings at the same time having to carry out rough stuff? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah I think at the end of the day, people put people first. Um, there's a lot of people that are mission-oriented, but at the end of the day, they would still put them, the people on either their team or the people that they worked with ahead of the mission. And I think, I think you got to keep that kind of mindset and... That's what gets us through it. If we're not doing it for the people, then what are we doing it for, mm -hmm. essentially? Um, so I think I think most people keep that in mind. And how many people do you think you touched in that evacuation of of refugees? Um, so I think the total number was somewhere um, high, one hundred twenty-three thousand. What? So I would work. We had 12-hour shifts. Usually they lasted about 14 hours. And we had planes trying to come in every half an hour. And we were loading between 300 and 550 people on each plane. So I, thousands and thousands, mm -hmm. as much as I could. Um, and that was, that was mainly my whole objective out there was the Marines were processing the passengers. They were vetting them. They were making sure that they were able to get on the planes and then um, our QRT and the CR, our mission was basically to escort them to the plane, get them situated on the plane, and get just keep the planes rolling. So, mm -hmm. take care of them while they were waiting. Yeah, obviously, yep. carrying a bunch of water helps with that. Yeah. What was the temp? Actually, in 
In Kabul, it wasn't too bad. Yeah. Um, I think it was low high, low hundreds, high nineties, which was a lot better than Kuwait, and <laughs> so it wasn't too bad. Yeah. And then at night it gets down there, which is nice. <laughs> I'm I run hot, so <laughs> yeah. Sometimes that definitely helps, right? Yeah. Uh, evacuating that number of people and and your role. What was the most you talked about compassion? What was the hardest thing you had to deal with? Seeing the kids. Um, they were so afraid of either maybe this was the first time they've ever seen a plane, first time that they've traveled, they're leaving their home. And all I could think about was if I had to put my daughter through something like that. And so that was definitely the hardest part, the emotions of that. Um, I think now most of them are relieved. I think they're happy. And but yeah, just the unknown for a six-year-old is horrible, I think, Yeah. and having to watch that. But you go up to them, you carry them, you, you hug them, you, you, know, you try to give them some candy or something, and they, they kind of loosen up and wave at you, smile, and yeah. it was fun. But yeah, that, that was definitely the best part and the hardest part. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that you know, having a family at home this time, as opposed to your first deployment, kind of made it real. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that was... Uh, that, that made it a little bit more real in that regard. Yeah. yeah. It definitely did. Yep. Last chapter of your book. <laughs> I asked about you the first chapter. And he's not writing a book. <laughs> Don't worry. But maybe after this, he'll get a bunch of letters asking him to. But what would the uh, last chapter of the book, Two Weeks in Kabul, be for this budding young author sitting in front of me? <laughs> um, you just got to keep, um, you got to keep your head on straight and you got to, I liked comedy. I'm a huge fan of comedy, and some of my best friends on the QRT, we still talk. I've been talking to them today. Um, and just keeping things in perspective, um, kind of getting through it with everybody. I think comedy is a good way to get through that. Um, people, people get it, and they, they understand it, and it just kind of helps relax the, relax the situation. And, Push through. Were you on the second to the last plane out? In Kabul, no. Um, I left the day before the official closure. So I don't know how many planes were there after, but I was there towards the end. What was the emotion like on the plane for you and, and for the, the rest of your crew? Um, I've never felt more relief in my life. Um, just knowing how many people we got out, knowing that they are a lot safer that day than what they were the day before. Um, and then knowing that I was safe, um, we were kind of, we were sitting in the C-17 waiting to take off and we're all like high-fiving, cheering, hugging. And, and then we're like, oh wait, we're still on the ground. We gotta, we should wait until we're the, at least in the air. Um, just cause it was real for the whole two weeks. Um, constant small arms fire and not, not necessarily aiming at us, but just just hearing it and feeling it. You, you'd see ricochets all over the place, um, knowing that you're going back to Kuwait where it's safe. Who cares if it's boring? At least, at least you're safe. Yeah, so. that type of excitement is the kind of yeah. excitement nobody really it was, wants. Yeah, it was, it was a great relief. Yeah. Well, we um, being able to help people in that that tough tough hour. Uh, 
that was a hard mission and it didn't get a lot of high praise on the way it got executed or the way that it was implemented. But I think the airmen, the soldiers, the Marines that were there doing the hard work, um, did you feel a sense of accomplishment even in the face of the chaos? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, news is reporting one thing, actually living through it and seeing how it actually went down is a lot different. Um, and I think people realize that. I just don't think that they understand the level of difference between what is being reported and what's actually happening. I think hindsight, yeah, things could have been done differently. But I think on the ground, people, the Marines, the Air Force, they adapted to what was being, what we were, what the mission was. Mm -hmm. um, I think, honestly, for the most part, it went fairly smoothly, smoothly on the mission, on the ground. Um, you know, you'd have a plane come in and be like, hey, we can only take 20 packs. Well, five minutes later, we're taking 400, sorry. And so just adapting to that, and for the most part, everybody was on the same page, and it went pretty smoothly. To move that many people in that amount of time has never been done, obviously, and I don't know if it'll ever be repeated. Hopefully not. Hopefully we don't have to be in a situation like that. But The largest refugee yeah. air evacuation in history. Yeah. By a long shot. I think, I think the previous record was like 11,000 or yeah. something, but... Well, I know there are a lot of people that were very, very thankful that somebody that has um, the strength to carry all that water, but also the heart to do it. Um, it, it speaks a lot for our, our organization and for you. Um, I've been talking with Mike Schutte. We talked a little bit about his time in Afghanistan and his not upcoming books, uh, Two Weeks in Kabul. But uh, we're going to take a break um, for a very important message. And we'll be right back. Hey, it's Major Brahma from the 133rd Airlift Flying 109th Airlift Squadron. We are hiring pilots. This year, we, uh, we have a 15 July deadline. We are interviewing end of August, early September. Some of the requirements to be a pilot are uh, an age limit. You have to be 30 years or younger. You do require a bachelor's degree, a private pilot license. Uh, you have to be located within 50 miles of the 133rd airlift wing. Applicants are encouraged to visit the squadron, if able, before the interview. And we have a hiring POC of Major TJ, TJ Oltman, 612-713-2399. Uh, undergraduate pilot training board again. Duouts are 15 July and interviews occurring at the end of August, early September. Thanks for considering. Welcome back to the second half of Beneath the Wing with Tech Sergeant Mike Schutte, our NCO of the Year, Non-Commissioned Officer of the Year at the 133rd Airlift Wing, and also the State Non-Commissioned Officer of the Year. Welcome back. Thank you. All right. Um, so your year... The calendar year started, and you were here getting ready for a deployment, which you talked a lot about in the first first half. Um, but the year really started on a pretty busy note, especially for people whose job it is to get passengers and cargo ready to roll. Um, let's talk a little bit about how our little airplane patch here in Minnesota turned into a pretty busy, busy place in January of 2020. What happened? 
Yeah, you know, honestly, I was doing a lot of pre-deployment training, and um, which was nice for me because I wasn't tasked as much yeah. with with uh, capital response. But yeah, it, it did kind of start off with a bang. Um, my main position in that was just kind of trying to move people. Um, I was working passenger processing during that. Um, I wasn't leading it or anything. I was just kind of there as a body trying to move it along as much as possible. But I, in the moment, I kind of didn't understand the res the level of what the 133rd was doing in it. And after hearing about it and reading about it and seeing it, I couldn't, it was awesome. It was great to be a part of that and proud that that was my wing. You're being, um, you're being modest with, yeah. with all of <laughs> no. this and just, um, Minnesota played, first off, we moved the entire 34th Infantry Division, which is a part of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. um, airmen from the 148th, our sister base up in Duluth, and then our base also went out. But Minnesota did the most airlift of cargo and passengers and the most sorties, which a sortie is a when an airplane takes off and then lands, that's a sortie. Uh, Minnesota played a huge role in supporting the... Uh, safe and peaceful transfer of power in Washington, D.C. Yeah. But every guard base in the country participated in that, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so you moved a ton of people. How much notice did you have that we were going to do this type of mission? Me, personally, I don't think I had a ton of notice. Um, I guess, I'm trying to remember back now, um, it, was a, it was a good enough notice to where you kind of get all your ducks in a row and and figure it out. I think we'd had, obviously we didn't have to really go fly anywhere for the previous year when we did the capital response down here, um, but I think we had a, a good practice. Mm -hmm. um, so we knew what to expect. We knew we were kind of in this situation where it's it's real. It's a, it's a real life thing that's happening. It's not just an exercise where we're sending people to Volk Field or anything. Um, it's real. So I think people people show up for game time. Um, <laughs> I, think I think practice is one way, and then when it's actual game time, y you adapt to it pretty quickly. So no matter what the, the notice was, I think we were pretty ready. Yeah, you had a good team on the ground here. How many people worked with you doing cargo and passenger processing? Well, I think, so the port, we're about 40, 45, um, and I think I'm, most of them were out here. Um, I would say a good 35 probably. Okay. Um, I know a couple of them went to D.C. Um, I don't quite remember which chalk they were on to get out there, but yeah, it was good. Just to paint the picture, um, I know that that particular weekend that we started sending soldiers out, um, they had showed up to Camp Ripley for a regular drill weekend, and instead of checking into where they were going to stay for the weekend, they were put on buses and brought down here, and suddenly they're sleeping on a hangar floor waiting to get on a plane. Uh, did you have much interaction with the soldiers that were getting shipped out? Um, just a little bit, just little small conversations. How you doing? You ready? Um, simple things like that, but yeah. nothing too, too in depth where I got to know them, but yeah, just kind of trying to gauge the morale and see what they were ready for, what they expected and what they thought was actually going to happen. Yeah. So. It, it turned into a pretty pretty big uh, big mission for us. Yeah. At one point, we had five of our planes in the air. Yeah. And all the other ones were in the middle of a maintenance procedure, <laughs> so everything that could spin uh, spun. Yeah. Um, 
On top of that, it's winter in Minnesota, and we're dealing with snow on the way out. And then I remember coming home from that uh, that mission, snowstorm again when we yeah. came home, yeah, 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> were you part of uh, getting, because it's not just getting people on the plane, your role also is getting stuff and people off the plane, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah loading, loading cargo and stuff is getting easier. I think um, we're... We've gotten a lot of a lot of real practice in. Um, I think most of uh, the porters are pretty spun up, and this real life stuff that's happening is only is only progressing people's careers and their knowledge even quicker than what they normally would. So I think moving the cargo is, is it's good, but people are getting it. Right. They're doing it good. It's it's like any kind of practice, and you guys did it under a stressful time, and yeah. everybody got out and everything got back. And everything was safe, which was a fantastic testament to the work that you did. Yeah, that's the ultimate goal. Absolutely. Um, so second half of the podcast, we usually just try to relax it a little bit. Um, you're a big exercise guy, right? Uh, in fact, you work at an exercise equipment store. Uh, if I was somebody that really was wanting to get in shape, and not necessarily in the best shape, <laughs> what are your top three best exercises that I could start without any equipment? Without any equipment, um, you're just kind of doing your own body squats, some push-ups. Honestly, that's the best. Um, it's easier on your joints. You're not, you're not going to get it crushed by some weights. And then just walking. Um, I'm obsessed with getting my Fitbit number up as high as possible. And <laughs> uh, quarantine prior to my deployment, we were in a hotel room for 21 days. And I did about 18 miles a day in my hotel room, walking figure eights. So, <laughs> did you wear out the carpet? I did. There was a, there was like a figure eight that you could see. Um, so, just simple things like that. Just just keeping your body moving. Um, now, if you want to go with the equipment, the best bang for the buck. I love the air bike. You sit on it for 20 seconds and you go as hard as you can. You're you're gonna get in shape really quickly. Sounds like good yeah. advice. Yeah. Sounds like really good advice. From somebody that ought to know, uh, just in case folks don't know, you've got a bachelor's in exercise science? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So that is from Concordia University in St. Paul. And I only went there for my last year of college. I started off at Winona, went to Duluth, back to Winona, and then to Concordia. So <laughs> I like to I like to bounce around a little bit, I guess. Sure. What yeah. kept you bouncing around? Um, I initially... Well, long story, I guess. My mom talked me out of not going active duty Army. And she said, go to college at first, try to play football, do something fun. I'm just going to go back to that double <laughs> yeah. negative. Your mom <laughs> talked you out of not going. So she talked you into not going into Correct. the Army? Got it. Correct. And it was the best decision ever. Um, so, <laughs> so then because of that, I had tours down in Winona, and I loved it. And then I also wanted to go to Duluth prior to that. But I never even applied, so I don't know why. And I was like, well, might as well try it out. I can come back if I don't like it. I only lasted a semester up there and then came back to Winona. And was it UMD itself, or was it yeah. just the fact that it's in Duluth and there's winter up there? There was just, I think, um, my I lived with three other um, guys that were all transfers. We didn't really know too many people. And I wish, if I, I think if I would have went there my freshman year, it would have been a lot different story. But, yeah, we, we didn't really know people. And with the winters, we were kind of stuck in our apartment. We didn't really do much. So, yeah. So, yeah, we went back down to Winona. All right. And then, uh, 
And then as I was getting married, that's when I transferred up to Concordia and to live with my wife and did finish you, out there. Did you meet her in Winona? No, so actually we have been friends since about sixth grade. We both went to Waconia High School. Um, didn't start dating until sophomore year of college, but we're always we were always friends for a while. So it's great to marry your friend. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah it makes things a little bit easier, and known her forever, so that helps. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so ping ponging around a little bit, I did the same thing in my college path. What advice would you give to somebody, especially somebody like in the military, and we move a lot, and the choices are better now. You can go on to an online degree school or online school and get your degree from the same place. But sometimes you lose credits, and it's just tough to transfer around, and we do move a lot in the military. So what advice would you give to somebody that's trying to get their education and balance a military career? No, that's a good point with the credits. I tried to go to... The schools where I knew they would transfer, and I did all my homework prior to actually transferring. I just didn't do it on, on a whim and like, oh, I want to go here now. Um, so just, yeah, just doing a little prior research and making sure that your things will transfer over. I had a great support system in Winona. Um, a lot of my friends from high school went there. So on drill weekends, they would drive up with me. We'd go see our families, and then on Sunday after drill, they'd pick me up, and we'd go back down to Winona. So... That was good to have that there. I didn't really have that in Duluth um, just because I didn't know anybody. And then, obviously, going to Concordia, it's right over there. So so I, I did have a good support, and that kind of helped out, too, um, with my choices on bouncing around. Yeah, <laughs> but certainly helps. Okay, let's go on to quick questions. Here's the rules. All right. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question, and you can't really think about the answer. You just have to answer. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Vegetable you'll never eat? None. I like them all. Best beer in Minnesota? <laughs> uh, local, I like Waconia Brewing. I, I like their beer, but um, non-local, Bush Light. You can't go wrong with that. Mm, Bush Latte. <laughs> of course it is. First question you ask a stranger that you want to get to know better. Where are you from? Prettiest spring flower. Sunflower. My wife likes them. I don't know. <laughs> that's a, as long as your wife likes them, that's yep. a good answer. Movie that made you cry? All of them. I watched Mighty Ducks last night, and I cried to it with my daughter. <laughs> best best exercise for your core? Ab roller. Guilty <laughs> guilty pleasure TV show? Ooh. Or the one you'd never oh. admit you watched to your friends? I forget the name of it, but it's a baking show. <laughs> Me and my daughter watch it. I don't know. She loves it. I forget the name of it, but it's awesome. Understood. I've had people on this podcast that just don't cry at movies. No, that's not me. Not me at all. So you watch The Mighty Ducks. What what in The Mighty Ducks made you cry? <laughs> there was like 10 different spot, spots where the, my eyes started to tear up. Um, the end when they win. How cool is that? And then they sing We Are the Champions. My daughter loves it. She knows Queen sings it, so she's all about it. There you go. Yeah. Is she a Freddie Mercury fan? She doesn't really know who he is, but um, <laughs> but she would be. Okay. She every every old song she thinks Queen sings it, but so sometimes she's right. But okay, last quick question: Best rock voice, Steve Perry, 
or Freddie Mercury. Freddie Mercury, sorry. <laughs> no, you don't even need to apologize for that one. And actually, that's there's no wrong answer on that yeah. one. No, he's got a he's inspirational with his voice. Absolutely. Um, so you've been in the military now for about thirteen years. No. Oh no. Um, I will be coming up on nine this summer. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give somebody thinking about joining the military? Your mom talked you out of the army. Yeah. And we have a lot of awesome soldiers that listen to this podcast. At least I hope. And. Um, <laughs> And they have a tough job to do, and they sign up, and they're enthusiastic about doing it, but it's not for everybody. What advice would you give somebody thinking about joining the military? Just being able to adapt. Um, every drill weekend is something different. Every deployment is something different. Um, the people that you work with, they're different. Everyone comes from different situations, and the sooner that you learn, you all mostly have the same goal in mind, and you work towards that goal, the quicker quicker your career goes, it seems, and the quicker that you get along with people. And yeah, just be able to go with the flow. Um, I've met a lot of good leaders that they, they led by example, and a lot of good people that were great followers, um, which is another, it's an awesome thing to be. And yeah, just kind of know what you are and figure that out and, and do it, do it good. All right. So I'm going to twist the question just a little okay. bit because you work with a lot of people in the military. What advice would you give someone who's already in the military? Um, kind of like I just said, like if you're a follower and you know you're a follower, um, do everything you can to support your leader. If you're a natural born leader and you have people that naturally just kind of gravitate towards you and follow you, build on that. Um, learn your people. Um, one of the biggest things from the best leaders that I've had, they have all led by example, and they're not afraid to say it how it is, and they're not afraid to just, if things are hard, and some people have been like, hey, Aaron, you gotta go do that. Well, I'm not gonna do that. That's not how I lead. I'm gonna join you. Um, yeah, so leading by example is is one of the best qualities that you can have. Absolutely. One of the, also a good thing for a parent, Right. Yes. So let's let's talk a little bit about the uh, your best friend who loves sunflowers. <laughs> um, you and your wife have been foster parents now. Uh, how did you get involved in being a foster parent? And to extend on that, now that you are, uh, are you a better leader because you're a parent? I think so. Okay. So um, first question. Yeah. How, how'd you get involved? So my wife is a social worker. Um, she's got her master's degree in social work. She's worked case management. She's worked in schools. She's currently in a school right now. Um, and she just always saw the need for it. From the second that we started dating, that's been her expectation is to be help out kids as much as she can. And this is the best way that we know how. So we got licensed through Carver County about four years ago. Um, and then our daughter, G, she was the first one that we got. And she's been the longest one we've had. How long now? So we got her when she was four, and she'll be eight this summer. So awesome! Yeah, no, it's been it's been amazing. She is our new best friend, and um, what's helped me being a parent that way. She's not our kid. She's not. She we didn't get to raise her her first four years. So what we did in our life and what she did were completely different. And I think that's similar to the military. You have people that have way different backgrounds. And you kind of just, you learn about that. 
everybody's an individual and um, the more that you can tailor that to help out that individual, some people learn in different ways. Um, we've had foster parents where, or foster children where um, the teenagers had to be the parent for the last five years to their three-year-old sibling. And so working with them is a lot different than working with somebody that is recently in foster care and you know has been able to rely on an adult. They still have to rely on them. Um, so yeah, just getting everybody's different situations and adapting because at the end of the day, who cares how you do it as long as they're happy, you're happy, and they're progressing in life. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. And they'll sit, sit on the couch with you and cry over the mighty oh, ducks. Yeah. She, she is, she's funny. She, she cries a lot too. She's very emotional. She's very in, in tune with her emotions. And someday she's like, Mikey, why are you crying at that? I was like, I don't know. They won. They beat, they beat Iceland. I don't know. It's good to cry together. Yeah, exactly. Um, dad to a daughter. Sometimes that's a challenge. It is. Eight is a fun age. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for dads that are parents of daughters? Honestly, it's awesome. I love being the the dad to the daughter, and I think you have a different bond than you would with a with a son. Um, we've had foster boys that are um, are used to one way with their dad, and and if I didn't live up to that or I wasn't the same, they would let you know. We're a girl. They kind of adapt, and they. <laughs> They get that there's a lot of things that you don't know about girls, and and they're she's good with that. Um, it's being it's awesome though. I love it. It's great. Yeah, she uh, she has her very girly side where she'll go get her nails done with my wife, and then every day, the second I'll pick her up from school today, we're gonna go play football down in the basement. Um, she loves sports, so we go to as many sporting events as she want. We went to a couple different high school football games together, went to the state tournament. We had nobody in it, but we just, she loves it, so. It's a good time with dad. It is, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. My daughter just turned 30. Okay. So I'll just give a quick shout out to, to Aaron. <laughs> Happy birthday. Um, it is, it is, it's a, it's a great thing. She's one of uh, six, which means she has five brothers. Wow, yeah. Yeah. So there's challenge yep. there with daughters. <laughs> But it is. It's a fantastic thing. Um, hey, Mike, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. This has been great. Thanks so much for your insight and for the hard work that you did this past year, uh, not just for the, the people that you helped to evacuate, but the, the way that you did it and the compassion and the care. Keep loving the people that you lead. Yeah. I can tell that you do. Um, for those of you that enjoyed the podcast, please join me for my next one. I uh, have a special guest uh, lined up the command chief for the Air National Guard, Maurice Williams, will be my next guest on Beneath the Wing. So please join me for that one. And again, thanks, Mike. Thank you.